Turn, if you would, to the fifth chapter of the book of John. We are continuing our uh, series of questions that Jesus asked different people. Today's question is rather simple, and uh, it produces quite a response, though, from the Pharisees and those around Jesus. So picking up in chapter 5 of the book of John at verse 1, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. He's been in Galilee, he's been ministering up there, and he's come down to Jerusalem. You're aware of the fact that Jewish, particularly men, were responsible for going to Jerusalem for a series of feasts and festivals every year. We are not told what feast this is. A lot of commentaries believe it was the Passover, but we don't really know that. It's simply a feast. Now, there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used, used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. So we, we're setting the stage here. There is a pool of water close to the temple. They have actually uncovered this pool. They do know where it is today. And there is a reputation that the pool has that if you enter the water at the appropriate moment, you will be healed. Now, if you were following along and looking at your verse numbers in the NIV that I was reading, you notice that verse 3 says, Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And then it goes to verse 5, which says, One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. There is no verse 4. There is in the New American Standard. There is in the King James. Uh, a lot of modern scholarship believes that verse 4 was added later as a commentary on what this pool was, what it did. We have no evidence in text before, I think, the 4th century that contained verse 4. But it's an interesting commentary. It probably is a historical um, reference that people at the time were probably aware of to explain why they would sit by this particular pool, but it isn't in the oldest manuscripts, and so that's why it's not included in several of the newer translations. But verse 4 tells us that an angel would come and stir the waters. And if you were the first one to enter the water when the angel stirred it, you would be healed. Now, we have no evidence that this was true. We have no evidence that people were actually healed at this pool. We have no evidence to the contrary either, but we don't have any evidence that they were. But we do know that people believe this. We do know that a large number of sickly people would sit by this pool waiting for an opportunity. You could almost begin to think that this particular pool and the colonnades and the area around it were a, um, almost a hospital of the time where people would go 
when they were in need of some mercy from the community. There wasn't a lot that the people could do to cure them, but they could provide alms and mercy for them. So that is the situation. We have a large number of people sitting by this pool who are invalid. What does it say? They are blind, lame, and paralyzed. And Jesus comes up. We are told in particular that there is one individual who had been there for 38 years. Now, that's a long time. Probably the average lifespan of a person in this time period. In fact, it was probably longer than the average lifespan. And he had been waiting. So, verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he, that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Now, we don't want to accuse Jesus of asking stupid questions, okay? But doesn't this kind of strike you as a stupid question? I mean, let's say that you go over to the emergency room and you greet a patient coming in the door and you ask them, do you want to get well? And they say, no, I came here for a cheeseburger. Or I came here for some other reason. Why would they be there if they didn't want to get well? The people around this pool were sitting there because they wanted to be cured of whatever it was that afflicted them. But Jesus asked the man, do you want to be healed? Do you want to get well? Because the man needed to know that he really did want to get well. Now, there's a spiritual application to this that we'll talk about in a moment, but I'll go ahead and tell you what it is. We know throughout the New Testament, we know throughout particularly the book of John, when dealing with people with infirmities and diseases and particularly blindness, that Jesus used that as a picture of spiritual problems. Yes, this individual was physically blind. But Jesus would turn and say, he's physically blind. Let me tell you about being spiritually blind. This man was physically infirm. But what Jesus wants us to think about is, are those who are spiritually infirm. And the question to those people is, do you want to get well? Do you want to be healed of your spiritual problems? And all of a sudden, the question becomes a whole lot more relevant. Because there are a lot of people out there in spiritual conditions that an outsider would look at and go, that's really bad. Yet they don't really want to get well. They're fine and happy. Well, not very happy. But they're fine exactly where they are. Maybe we'll talk about that in a moment. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Can you imagine the apprehension all of these 
sickly people sitting around this pool of water, staring at the water, waiting for some ripple because of the belief that an angel comes down and touches the water. And when it ripples, if you can rush down there, if you could be the first, you could be healed. And this man has been doing this for 38 years, and he says, I can't do it. I can't move fast enough, and I don't have anyone to help me. Now, we could have a long discussion here about the uh, advantages of having friends. Do you remember the story, however many weeks ago it was that we did, where the four men brought the one man to Jesus and cut a hole in the roof and lowered him down? It's good to have friends. This man had no friends. He had no one to help him to get to the water in the hope that the water would cure him. After 38 years, you would think he would have kind of lost hope. But he still sat there. He has no idea at this time, by the way, who Jesus is. We see that in a moment. Even after he was healed, he had no idea who Jesus was. So we will forgive him for the moment of not recognizing that the solution to his problem was not down there in the pool of water. The solution to his problem was the guy standing next to him. We will forgive him for not recognizing that because most of the time we don't recognize it either. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool. When the water is stirred, while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. It was a mad dash. It was a mad dash to get into the pool. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat, and he walked. How much simpler can it get? Question. How many sick people were at this pool? A bunch. We have no idea how many. Obviously a crowd, because obviously when the water was stirred, there was a mad dash to get into it. A multitude. More than three. There were a bunch. There were a bunch of sick people waiting to get into the pool. Jesus comes along and he heals one. Think about that for a moment. Is that fair? Hmm. We better not answer that. It leads to bad questions. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. A miraculous event. A man who had been there for 38 years, lying there, unable to move. And Jesus simply tells him, go. And he goes. Then the trouble starts. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. <gasps> Curses. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. I detect some chuckles. The power of God had just been evident in this man's life. 
You have to assume that people around the pool knew this man because he had been there for 38 years. They knew of his condition. They knew what had happened to him. They were not interested in what had happened to him. They didn't care what had happened to him. What they cared about was that he was breaking the rules of the Pharisees by carrying his bedding on the Sabbath day. God had worked a miraculous event in this individual's life, verifiable. The crowd saw it. People knew it. They knew who he was. They knew what he was before. They knew what he was now. And all they are concerned about was, why in the world are you carrying your mat on the Sabbath day? We're getting to that one. It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. I might add, there is absolutely nothing in the Old Testament about carrying your mat on the Sabbath day. There are laws about what you can and can't do. That is true. But as we are well aware, the Pharisees and other members of the Jewish community had taken those laws and they had started to perfect them, to fix them, to make sure that we all understood what they were. And they had built a series of laws around those and a series of laws around those and a series of laws around those as they tried to understand what work meant, you weren't allowed to work on the Sabbath day, therefore carrying your bedding would constitute work, therefore you can't carry your bedding, even if you were just healed from an ailment that you'd had for 38 years. So they asked him, no, he, but he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. Stop again. There was a comment that he was blaming this on Jesus. Maybe. Maybe he was just giving a factual answer. He was doing what he was told to do. Now, he was probably a good Jew. He knew that this Jewish group could punish him for what he was doing, for violating the Sabbath. So, yeah, he was probably trying to get out of the blame. But look at the phrase again. The man who made me well told me to do something. Didn't anybody stop to ask, tell me about this getting well part. Now, we know for a fact that these same Jewish Pharisees are going to blast Jesus for even doing the miracle on the Sabbath because obviously that is a work in and of itself. Hmm. So they ask him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? They were going to go after him. Obviously this guy was a bad dude. He had violated the Sabbath. Not only had he violated, he had commanded others to violate it. We've got to get this guy. The man who was healed had no idea who it was. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Jesus walks over to this column made, this 
area, the pool with the columns, and he walks up to one individual and he says, you, do you want to be healed? And he heals him. And then he simply melts back into the crowd. Nothing showy, nothing flashy, no interest at all in any public recognition for what he had done. None of that simply melted back into the crowd. Did I happen to mention there were a lot of sick people here? And he healed one of them? Is that fair? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd and was not there. Later, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Okay, Jesus has gone to the temple. This man had gone to the temple. You would like to think the man had gone to the temple to offer a sacrifice of praise because of the fact that he had just been healed. Who knows? But they ran into each other. And Jesus tells him, See, you are well again. After 38 years, you're well. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Huh. Stop sinning. Why do you think Jesus told the man that? Because he was sinning. Is he saying that the sin caused the sickness is the question? I don't know. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There was no question in Jesus' mind that this individual had sinned. Because Jesus was well aware of the hearts of all men that we are by nature sinners. That wasn't a question. He tells the man to stop sinning or something worse is going to happen. Now, you could take this as a threat that the first time I sin, I'm going to go back to being an invalid sitting by the pool of the water waiting for somebody to help me to the pool and blah, 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 blah. But no. He says something worse is going to happen. There is something worse than lying as an invalid by the pool for 38 years. And that's what Jesus is telling him. You had it really bad. You lived a miserable existence. But let me tell you, there is something worse than that. There is the reality of sin. There is the reality of punishment for sin. And that is worse than what you have been living for the last 38 years. Jesus gave no message when he healed the individual. He simply healed him and melted back into the crowd. Why did he do that? Why didn't he use that as an opportunity to preach to the crowd. Hmm. Because he has a different message that he wants to give. And he's going to give it in the rest of the chapter, and we're going to read some of it, but not all of it, because there's too much good stuff in it. 
to cover all of it. Why did Jesus heal the one and not all? Because being blind, being paralyzed, being lame is not the worst thing in the world. It's bad. I don't want to be there. I mean, don't, don't, I'm not going to belittle it in any way, form, or fashion. But Jesus wants them to understand that's not the worst condition. The worst condition is the unrepentant sin that brings damnation. There is something worse. And Jesus tells this individual, don't sin. Stop sinning. Or something worse is going to happen. Now, the question was raised by Marilyn. Is he implying that he was an invalid because of his sin? And we've addressed this in here before. The obvious answer is yes and no. So we can go on to the next topic. All infirmities, all sin, in, I mean, all the bad things in this life are ultimately caused by sin. As a result of the fall, pain and suffering came into this world. We have broken relationships that cause problems. We have thorns on the plants that cause problems. We have disasters that cause problems. We have things that cause problems. All because of sin in the world. But we are not told in Scripture that particular ailments come from particular sins. On occasion, God reveals to us that one individual's sin produced a particular disease or whatever. You did this, therefore you got that disease. But unless you are receiving direct revelation from God, and I doubt you are, but unless you are receiving direct revelation from God concerning you or someone else, it is always a mistake to say, ah, that person has a bad life. They must have sinned by, and fill in the blank with your favorite sin. This is the problem that Job's friends had with Job. They came along, they saw the sorry state that Job was in, and they said, boy, if your life is this bad, you must be a really bad sinner. Well, he wasn't. He was a sinner like the rest of us, but he wasn't any worse. In fact, it says in chapter 1, he was a righteous man. So trying to make a direct correlation between a particular sin and a particular affliction is always a dangerous thing to do, unless God has revealed it to you. But, comma, sin does cause disruption in our world. Make no mistake about it. In the Garden of Eden, I, before the fall, I doubt if there was disease, etc., etc. Okay? Nobody wants to argue with me. Y'all are too easy. See that you are well see you are well well again, stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. The little snitch. 
he had probably been put on notice. You know, if you see the guy again, let us know, uh, because otherwise we're going to punish you. And he didn't want to be punished by the Jewish community. He wasn't yet ready to be a martyr for the faith. So, that's all the introduction. Now comes the good stuff. So, because Jesus was doing things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. He was doing things, these things on the Sabbath. What things was he doing? He was healing people. He was curing diseases. He was doing things that they had no power to do. He was demonstrating that he had a power and authority that they could not begin to imagine. And they hated him for it. They didn't like it. Jesus said to them, My Father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Now, you've got a group of agitated Pharisees who are agitated because he's been healing on the Sabbath. How do you think they're going to respond to this comment? My Father is always working. And I'm working too. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, at this point, we need a brief digression into the Sabbath day. God created the earth in six days, and on the seventh day, God rested. Question, was God worn out? No, God was not worn out. Was he a little bit tired? No. Did God cease doing anything on that day? No. Why? We are told in the scriptures that the world is sustained constantly by the power of God. If God stopped being God, the world would stop being in existence. It is sustained. We are not deist. God did not create the world, wind it up like a clock, and stick it over on the shelf and leave it alone. It is sustained and maintained moment by moment by God's power. If God stopped working... The world as we know it would cease to exist. So, if he wasn't tired, if he wasn't worn out, if there were things that he kept doing, why in the world did he institute the Sabbath day in the first place? He didn't need it. We needed it. God instituted the Sabbath because God knew that we, as finite creatures, you do know we're finite creatures, right? There is a God, and you're not it. Okay? We are finite creatures. We are dependent upon God for our next breath. And as such, God 
built into the fabric of the universe the idea that you and I need to rest. We need to rest because our physical bodies need it. We need to rest because our relationship with God is built upon us recognizing our dependence upon God. And that's what we do on the Sabbath. If I believe that everything I am, everything that I do, everything that I accomplish is my work and mine alone, I will work seven days a week, 52 weeks of the year, and I will wear myself to an early grave. But by golly, I'll show that I did it. When I am dependent upon God, I am willing to stop and say, okay, I don't understand. There is work to be done. There is work to be done, but God tells me to stop my work and trust in him. This far and no farther. Build me an ark. <laughs> For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. They wanted to kill him because he was not fulfilling their rules and regulations. He was a nonconformist. Now, at this point, we have difficulty at times imagining a group of people so close-minded that a man would be healed and they wouldn't give a flip about that, but they would be totally upset that their rules and regulations were being violated. Now, if you think that that couldn't happen today, you haven't been around enough bureaucrats. And you know what? There are bureaucrats outside the church. There are bureaucrats inside the church. We had discussions several years ago when we worked through the doctrinal statement of the church and when, uh, I guess when we were in 1 Corinthians, about the gift of healing. We had long discussions about that. Our church does not believe that the gift of healing is alive and well in the world today. But, comma, we believe God heals people. We believe that God works in ways that we cannot understand. And when God works in a way that we cannot understand, we should not spend a lot of time and effort trying to force God into our box that God says, I don't want to fit in. God is going to do what God wants to do. Now, God will not violate his word because the word is a representation of his character, and his character does not change. But God is God, and you are not. And if God wants to heal someone miraculously, and he does, if God wants to heal somebody miraculously, who are we to complain that it wasn't done in a Bible church by a pastor from Dallas Theological Seminary? Just a thought. I don't want to get into any trouble. Not only did Jesus heal on the Sabbath, 
he also claimed that God was his father. The rest of this chapter is a fabulous discussion. I'm just going to read part of it. Uh, we won't get through uh, most of it. But I quote it so often that I, I want you to know that I'm really not making this stuff up when I quote it. <laughs> well, sometimes I am making it up, but <laughs> you'll have to catch me on those. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. Now, I don't think there would be any discussion at the time that they know who he's talking about here. Just like in the last comment when he said, my father is always working and I am too, they know that he's talking about God, the father. They know that. There's no question. So when he gets into this passage, he is relating his activities, his authority to do those activities to his father's authority and his father's will. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does yes to your amazement he will show you show him even greater things than these for just as the father raises the dead and gives them life even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it huh no comment Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You cannot worship God the Father and ignore his Son. I don't want to get into a long discussion about alternative religious beliefs, different groups, different organizations worshiping this God, that God, or some other God. If you do not honor the Son, you are not honoring the Father. End of discussion. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed from death unto life. I tell you the truth. A time is coming. And has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Are we talking about physically dead people here? Well, we do know that Jesus healed a few dead people, okay? Brought them back. Lazarus, come forth. And he did. Okay. But is that what he's really talking about here? No. He is talking about us being dead in our trespasses and our sins. And God, Jesus, speaks, and the dead come to life. I tell you the truth, for as, verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. That's a huge philosophical discussion in that verse right there. The Father has life in himself. In philosophy, they talk about necessary beings and contingent beings. Contingent beings are those that could not exist. It is possible for them to not exist. 
you and I are contingent beings. Without God giving us breath, we cease to exist. We do not have to exist. We may think we're the center of the universe, but we're not. God the Father is not contingent upon anything. He has life in and of himself. Because of his being, he has life. And he has given his, him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. There it is, the mission of Christ. The Pharisees thought they had him. He had violated their law. They hated him, and they wanted to kill him for healing a man on the Sabbath, for instructing the man to carry his mat on the Sabbath. This is a bad dude. And Christ responds with a discussion of his relationship to his father and the fact that the father had given him the authority and the power to do these things. And who in the world do you think you are, Pharisees, for telling me no? The Father has life. He gives it to the Son who gives it to us when we hear the word and respond to it. I quote this often about the fact that Jesus only did what the Father directed him to do. Ultimately, ideally, that's how we are to live our lives directed by the Father. But we don't do that. We want to put God in a box, to put Jesus in a box. We want to be like the Pharisees and construct our rules upon our rules upon our rules. And we lose sight of the fact that the Father sent the Son to give us life and not just to see if we can be better than somebody else by keeping one more rule and one more regulation than they are. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. And my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Who were the Pharisees trying to please? It's actually a harder question than it might appear. Because I would argue, at least at one point, the Pharisees were interested in pleasing God. They were interested in doing what God would have them to do. But over time, they became more interested in the applause of 
men than the applause of God. Yes. Did you all hear that? I mean, if they had been at all interested in doing what they should have been doing, they would have been doing something to help this man. But no. What did Jesus tell them? You'll travel miles and miles to win one convert, yet you heap heavy weights, heavy burdens on those that are beneath you. What is the point of all of this? The point is, God has come to heal those who are sick. As we said throughout the book of John, we see this as a picture of those of us, all of us, that are spiritually sick, spiritually damaged, spiritually blind. And God comes to us in the same way that God comes to this man, and says, do you want to be healed? Unfortunately, some of us are not aware of our condition like this man was, and sometimes we say, mm, I'll think about it. you got to give the man credit. He at least knew that he wanted to be healed. For Unfortunately, some of us are so blind that we can't even acknowledge that. But you know, if I walked up to you and I said, do you want to be healed from your spiritual blindness, your spiritual paralysis, um, you might say yes, and I may say more power to you, but I may not be able to do a lot for you. That's why we break into this discussion about who Christ is. I cannot save you, but Christ can. Christ is the Son of God. Christ has been given the power by God. God. Christ has been given the authority by God. He has been given the power and the authority to give life. Why did Christ not heal all the people that were by that pool? It's not fair, is it? Well, it has nothing to do with being fair. We sometimes lose sight of the fact, we had this discussion several weeks ago, Christ didn't come to physically heal everyone on the planet. He could have done it. He had the power to do it. He came to spiritually heal everyone on the planet. The physical healing was, was simply the opportunity to present the gospel, to present the message, to stir up the crowd, if you will, good or bad. Sometimes he stirs up a good crowd, sometimes he... The physical healing is not the message. 
The spiritual healing is the message. We sometimes would be like this man. And, and, and I, I do not fault him at all for this. If I had been in this condition for 38 years, I would think that's the worst thing in the world. I really would. But Jesus says, no, there's something much worse. Don't worry so much about the one that can destroy the body. Worry about the one who can destroy your soul. The Pharisees were still thinking in physical terms. And Jesus was trying to drag them out of that view, probably unsuccessfully. Because in about two or three more chapters, we see again, they're still trying to kill him for healing somebody on the Sabbath. They didn't learn at all. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you healed this man. But thank you even more that you have healed all of us. I pray, Lord, that you would work in our lives and bring in our lives the reality of what you have accomplished in us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.